This episode is brought to you by Shea Moisture. We finally got some deodorants designed specifically for people with rich melanin skin from Shea Moisture. And they're amazing. Made with Shea butter and black dermatologist approved. These deodorants give you and your skin the care that it needs. Now, here's the thing, Rachel. Okay. The deodorants came to the house. Yes, me too. You got yours. I got them. Kalika picked one up mm-hmm. specifically. And I was like, oh, why are you picking that one up? And she said, because it says it's even underarm tone mm-hmm. and she goes like sometimes when you use the other deodorants they leave like your underarms untoned or something like that and she was so excited to have it she went back and she started using it right there which made me wonder if she had put deodorant off today <laughs> maybe she just reapplied maybe she, but but like so that's a it's a huge deal and i've been using it too it's very great it's good it smells good oh yeah thing. no no no. it is good and it's last long like mm-hmm. i'm a sweater Mm-hmm. So I need something strong. Mm. And I need, in addition to, I like that it evens out the underarm. I like the moisture and all of that, but it's the, I need it to last long. And this last for, it's a 48 hour sweat and odor protection, which is key. Wow. Uh, get the protection your skin deserves. Tap the banner to learn more or visit SheaMoisture.com. This episode is brought to you by Maybelline New York. Get ready to bring the heat with Maybelline's newest lip plumping gloss, Lifter Plump. Fair warning, though, it's hot. Like, literally. It's formulated with chili peppers to bring a heated sensation and an instant plumping effect that lasts. Available in eight sizzling shades like Blush Blaze, Hot Honey, and more. Buy Lifter Plump now on Amazon and use the code 10PLUMP to get 10% off for a limited time. Tap the banner to learn more. All right, guys, we've been having an ongoing discussion here about animals. You guys know how much I love animals. I might be considered the world's foremost animal lover. But there are questions that arise when you're a lover of animals. What's okay? What is it? Some people say it's great to have zoos where you can go learn about animals. Others say let the animals go. Some people say it's great to have uh, circuses where you can go and see animals form. Others say no, cruel, bad. We had a conversation here on uh, podcast about zoos. Uh, about circuses, about all different types of things, but we realized we don't know what the hell we're talking about. So we brought in somebody <laughs> who does. Chris Draper, who's the Chief Operations Officer of Performing Animal Welfare Society. Performing Animal Welfare Society is better known as PAWS. Oh, cute name. Uh, PAWS is dedicated <laughs> to the protection of performing animals to providing sanctuary to abused, abandoned, and retired captive wildlife to enforcing the best standards of care for all captive wildlife to the present pres- to the preservation, shall I say, of wild species and their habitat and to promoting public education about captive wildlife issues. Chris joins us today on Higher Learning. Thank you for joining us, Chris. My first question. Are circuses okay? Circuses with with animals, circuses with wild animals in particular, I would say are not okay. Um, I think there's a very clear difference between what wild animals have evolved to need and the life that they can be given in a traveling circus Mm. and if you think about a life in a circus it's not just what goes on in the ring you know you 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 think of a circus and animals performing tricks in a ring and maybe it doesn't seem so bad you might think but then think about what the animal is doing when it's not in the ring and that'll be most of a 24-hour period it'll be not performing, not in a ring. It'll be stuck in, generally speaking, what is a small traveling uh, enclosure, quite often on the back of a vehicle. Um, and it'll be separated from members of its own species. It'll be, you know, sensory deprived. It'll be in a really unnatural situation, something that really doesn't sit well with these animals' uh, needs and their biology. So, I would say it's pretty clear, you know, on a, on the basis of evidence that circuses using animals is, is really something that needs to belong in the past. Like, not, I guess my question isn't how did we get here, but how are we still here? I would think that with so many, you know, activists out there and we're now way more knowledgeable about, you know, the behind the scenes of what's happening with these wild animals. How, how are we still here? I think that's a really good question. Uh, And it's not despite a lot of effort that's gone in to 
get to where we are now. And there have been some significant successes and significant developments where, for example, several states and, and other local um, areas in the in the US have bans on uh, something that's called a bull hook. And that's a curved, sharp uh, stick that's used to control and they well the industry would say guide elephants um i think the word guide is is probably sugar coating it to be honest these you know these things are aversive these things are unpleasant for the animal um and they've been banned in a lot of constituencies now they've been banned in some states um and and rightly so and what's really interesting about banning bullhooks is it means that circuses can't bring their elephants anymore. Uh, and that's caused, so these bans have caused a, a quite a big change where circuses, um, for the most part, are no longer using elephants in the, U- in the US. Uh, there's still a few that are, um, I would say, hanging in there and, and uh, bucking the trend. But, I mean, I think their days are numbered. Um, unfortunately, though, there's still uh, circuses wanting to use things like big cats. Um, And you could argue there's still a demand for people seeing these animals in circuses. And maybe that's what's keeping the last bit of the industry going. But I I really think that the tide is turning. Um, I've seen it in my, not just my lifetime, but my professional lifetime. I've seen attitudes change where the public have gone from thinking that seeing wild animals in circuses and doing tricks as, as, sort of benign and okay and you know a bit funny maybe that people are now very sensitized to it and are really going against uh that sort of exploitation of animals and i'm very pleased to see that so the name of the organization is the performing animal welfare society so i'm assuming that there are conditions in which you think performing animals are are okay what would those conditions be well, we, we focus on on providing sanctuary and, and advocacy for animals that are used in performances or have been used in performances. OK, we don't okay. use them ourselves in performances. No, very far from it. Um, so we're, we're here to advocate on behalf of those animals that have been used in performances, exploited in captivity. And we operate a, a large scale uh, animal sanctuary here in California. Uh, which is home to seven elephants and eight tigers and three bears and several other species of animals, all of which uh, for the, that have come from a, a whole raft of different histories, different places and different means of being exploited. Uh, most of our animals have come from wholly inappropriate situations in, in circuses and zoos. So are there, I guess I would ask, are there, excuse me, I'm sorry, Richard. No, no, go ahead. Because um, are there... Uh, ways to humanely have an animal that performs because there are animals in movies, there are animals in shows, there are animals that do all kinds of other things, you know, that people find funny or entertaining. What is the way to have an animal that would be performing in something for human beings that would be humane, in your opinion? Is there a way? I'm going to go out on a limb and say that really there isn't a way. Um, Mm. we're We're dealing with such specialized animals, such specialized creatures that that have in, in, in many cases. So take, for example, elephants, you know, they're incredibly intelligent and obviously they operate at a scale that is so much bigger than than we're used to as humans. Um, trying to give them a modicum of, you know, a reasonable life in captivity. It's so, so difficult to even match their basic needs, let alone give them a good quality of life. And I would extend that even to, to our own facility. You know, it's still captivity. We have to be the first to admit that we're doing our very, very best for the animals that we care for, but it's still not where they belong. These, anim- these are wild animals and they belong truly wild animals. They belong in the wild. Um, unfortunately, the damage has been done a long time ago with the animals that we have so, for example, our elephants, one of ours is, is 56 years old. She's the oldest um, African elephant in North America. She's been caught from the wild 50-something years ago. There's no going back for her, unfortunately. She now has to live out the rest of her life in captivity. I'm pleased to say that we're doing our very, very best to give her 
something towards what you know what she needs as as a, a very intelligent and and sensitive uh animal but we've got to admit that that any form of captivity is always going to be a compromise and that's why I, i'm pretty confident when i say that using animals like this in captivity making them perform even if it's um you know something that's that's relatively harmless it's what goes on behind the scenes what goes on for the rest of their lives that we have to take into account and when we think of that i i come to the conclusion that it's just not humane you know i feel i'm from texas <clears throat> and i was shocked i guess i was outside of austin and i went to a i don't even know if it was a private zoo it was just somebody who had all this land and they had a giraffe and they had zebras and ostriches. And I, I had no idea that these privately owned places existed. And apparently there are several in Texas with these wild animals. Oh yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm curious because I, that's something I didn't know that was, was out there. How are these better forms? Cause we haven't really gotten into zoos that question, but. Are these, is it better because these, these places have the land? I'm not sure if they have the means or even the facilities or the, the help to, to be able to have mm. these wild animals. But I mean, when I saw it, it looked okay. I'm curious mm. with the work that you do. And are you seeing more of these type of locations popping up around the country? Sure. I mean, that, that sort of situation is, is surprisingly common. Um, people are often shocked when you tell them, you know, just what it is legal to own in, term, in terms of wildlife in, in, in the US, in Europe. You know, restrictions are not that strong. Um, and unfortunately, that means if you've, got, if you've got the money, you can have exotic animals on your, on your property, on your ranch, that kind of thing. And inevitably, they suffer. Inevitably, they're not going to be cared for properly. Um, so... Yes, space. You might have a huge property and you might be able to offer animals a, a fair amount of space. Two things I'd say to that is, one is it's never enough. It's never going to be anything like the space they, they've evolved to use in, you know, in their natural habitat. But more than that is space is just one aspect of their life. Um, animals, depending on the species, they have enormously complex social uh need social uh networks in in the case of some species um they have a, a drive to forage you know look for food in a in a very um sophisticated manner in some cases and they're doing it in a you know for a great part of their day using their brains uh to to look for food look for water they've evolved you know to avoid predators to to look for social companionship look for mates all of these these environmental factors are going to be i would say next to impossible to replicate or recreate in um in, in a private property or, or a zoo or certainly a circus you know even with the best of intentions that's where we're always going to drop the ball we're always going to be compromising these these animals in some way sadly um and i have no doubt that there are a lot of people out there that own animals like this they own exotic animals and they love these animals and i have no doubt about that and they want to do the best for them but sadly love isn't enough it's it's got to come from what you're offering these animals to live in and i mean in my experience it i've never seen anyone do it right uh, certainly not for large animals, large mammals. It's so hard for, for to, to factor in all these different variables of what these animals, you know, need in their life. So, yeah, it's uh, it's just yet another form of, of exploitation of these animals, unfortunately. And, you know, the more that these uh, exotic animals are, are allowed to be kept in private hands, the more there's a need for facilities like horses sanctuary or, or others to to offer homes when things go wrong um and f from where i sit it's important that we don't just mop up other people's problems it's really really important that we just don't become a dumping ground for animals that are cast off from somebody's pets or from 
zoo, crummy zoos that have shut down or circuses. What we also have to do is try and stop these um, these industries at, at the very start so that these animals are not being kept and then they're not needing a sanctuary for the rest of their life. Last question for me, and then it's two questions, one big one and then one small one. Big question is zoos. What part do they play in um, society at large? Are they a positive or are they a, ne- are they a negative? And then the second, the question after that is, is it okay for me to have a wolf dog? <laughs> okay. I, that, those are some big questions and, and none of them are little questions. I'll tell you that. Um, so, okay. Zoos. Right. I will say this about zoos. They're here. There are a lot of them and they ain't going anywhere in a hurry. Are they doing anything for society? I, I think it's fair to say there is a demand for people uh, amongst people to see animals. People love animals. Uh, you know, you're not alone in being an enormous animal lover. Everybody loves animals. And, and, I'm, and that's great. That's we all have this. Well, almost all of us have this this drive to nature. Um, but <laughs> that comes at a price and that price is paid, sadly, by the animals themselves that we keep in in zoos. Um, so zoos, arguably, they they fulfill a number of um, objectives. One of them that, that they talk about a lot is conservation. You hear a lot from the zoo industry talking about how they're doing an enormous amount of work for conserving the natural world. Um, I'm sceptical when I hear this because I think there's an enormous disconnect between animals sitting in a cage in, I don't know, Central Park or somewhere, uh, and the, the, the threat to their natural habitat out in the wild. There's a, a, there's a lot of miles between those two places, and there's a lot of logistical um, obstacles to ensuring that their habitat and their population survives in the wild just by exposing them to you know, visitors in a city park. Um, so zoos are not doing as much as they would say they are in relation to keeping endangered species safe. They do raise a bit of money towards conservation. That much I, I can't deny. But again, is it, is it enough? Is it saving the world? No, of course it's not. It's, it's crumbs from the table. You know, zoos are incredibly expensive things to run feeding animals, running, you know, veterinary care for animals, uh, operating um, concession stands for visitors, toilets for visitors, you know, all the the things that come with being a visitor attraction, hugely expensive. And as a result, the money that they raise is a tiny fraction of their overall cost. So it's it's not a very efficient way of raising money for for conserving the, the natural world. And frankly, if, if, if zoos were doing what they say they're doing for conservation, we wouldn't be in the situation that we are now with populations of, of, let's say, African elephants being as low as they are. They're in the tens of thousands. When zoos first sort of started, and I really only mean 150 years ago, give or take, populations of, of African elephants were well in the millions. And during that time, mm, they wow. decreased and decreased and decreased. That is so fucking sad, man. It, it's 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 a travesty, and what we're now dealing with a situation, and that's just one species, of course. We're talking about just to choose one example where the population has plummeted despite zoos, and this you see repeated. Doesn't matter what species you look at, with with a handful, and I really mean a handful, tiny handful of exceptions. Zoos have done nothing to stop the plummeting population of. Uh, of, of animal species, particularly mammals and, and birds out there. Um, you know, there's a crisis going on in the natural world. Nobody should dispute that. There really is. But the answer does not lie in running visitor attractions so that people can see animals, bored animals in captivity. I, I really just, I think it's such a, it's such a tantalizingly attractive but fundamentally flawed idea um, and I get it because when I was a kid, I used to go to zoos. I used to love going to zoos. I loved animals. Um, and I've heard it said, you know, when I was a kid, I love I went to zoos because I loved animals. As an adult, I don't go to zoos because I love animals. You know, it's that switch that needs to happen in people's minds. Um, you don't need to see 
a tiger this far from your face through glass in order to care about tigers in the wild. That much is, is it's, it's a fallacy that's being, uh, being per- perpetrated by zoos, unfortunately. And I, and I think it's a real, real shame. It does animals a disservice and it does people a disservice. So are they doing education, zoos? Some, not, not enough to justify their existence, if you ask me. Are they entertaining people? Yes. And that's why they exist. People like zoos. People like animals. Does it justify them from an ethical point of view? Does it ju- justify them from a, a practical point of view? Absolutely not, if you ask me. Mm. Now, wolf dogs. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I would say that is a, a, it, it's a very interesting point uh, where there's a lot of hybridization uh, in the pet trade, unfortunately. People keeping uh, Bengal cats and savannah cats, which are hybrids between domesticated cats and servals and uh, leopard cats. I forget the exact makeup now. And, and, and wolf dogs. The, the worry is, what are you getting when you cross these animals? Do you, are you getting more wolf or are you getting more domestic dog? Um, you know, don't get me wrong. I'm a big dog lover, but even domestic dogs, some breeds and some individuals can be quite hard to handle. Uh, introducing wolf into the mix. Is that, is that, is that really a wise idea? Um, Probably not. I don't even want it now that I talk to you, Chris. I'm not going <laughs> to. <laughs> I didn't know you did. Oh, my job then. Right. <laughs> um, Rach, you got anything else? I, well, what I was just hearing you talk about the, the way the cats t- too, and then the wolf dog, mm-hmm. it makes me wonder, is there any type of animal, wild animal that you could have at home? Cause people have so many, to, is there something, not that I'm encouraging it. I'm just no, curious. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, my first response to that is, you know, can we not just focus on, on domesticated species, the ones that we know about, the ones that we um, we've sort of co-evolved with. You know, if you think about humans and dogs have, have, have co-evolved for tens or hundreds of thousands of years, um, we have an understanding of how dogs behave and dogs have an understanding of what it's like to live alongside humans and they've sort of adapted to living alongside humans. Um, mm-hmm. And yet you look at how badly we treat dogs and how many homeless dogs and cats there are in shelters everywhere. And yet people still want to go out and find a new species of exotic to keep it's, It breaks my heart. I mean, honestly, it's, it's let's deal with what we've, we've created before we go out looking for more. I think with all these discussions of captivity, and that's really what we're, we're talking about here. Yes. You probably can find smaller, less complex species that may not know they're in captivity and if that's the case and you are meeting you're genuinely providing all their needs then i think that there is maybe less of a concern about their welfare um and i'm talking really things like maybe amphibians like frogs and and newts and salamanders and you know that smaller stuff like that (laughs) may not really know or care that they're in captivity um (laughs) but i think with most most of the stuff that you might be thinking of, I mean, bigger stuff, furry stuff, stuff with feathers, anything, whether it be in a zoo, a circus, or being kept as a pet, anything you 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 know, when you put them in a in in confinement, you're you're causing a problem, um, and adding another species to the roster of of animals that we might uh, that we're doing bad things to. It, it it kind of you know, it's not necessary. If anyone wants talking about, you know, exotic pets, if they want to get something, rescue something, go to the shelter. You might even be able to rescue an exotic. You know, there's plenty of reptiles and snakes being snakes like, you know, being dumped because people don't want them anymore. There's Mm. now, you know, they're already out there in the pet trade. Don't buy them. Don't don't start a demand for a new type. Go out and rescue and, and offer a good home. Do your research. Do get the right equipment um ask experts genuine experts don't you know dr google is not a good a good expert on many of these, <laughs> fortunately chris i'm coming to see you guys man are oh, you welcome well, anytime be delighted to show you around what we do i'm gonna come up there scones on me i can tell you like a good scone uh, always. Uh, <laughs> yeah, scones yeah. on me that's except, chris except draper I say scone, except i say scone 
Scone. It's scone. Am I wrong? Oh, scone. Okay, oh, scone. He's never going to say it the other way again, Chris. Scone. In the UK, whether you say scone or scone. Okay, scones on me, man. I'm going to come up there and hang out with you guys. That's Chris Draper, everybody. I hope that you learned something from him. Pause is the organization. Is there a particular place that people go to donate or to get more information if they are so inclined, Chris? If they could go to our website, it's www.pauseweb.org. Okay. That's Chris Draper. Thank you so much for joining us on Higher Learning, Chris. This episode is brought to you by Shea Moisture. We finally got some deodorants designed specifically for people with rich melanin skin from Shea Moisture. And they're amazing. Made with Shea butter and black dermatologist approved. These deodorants give you and your skin the care that it needs. Now, here's the thing, Rachel. Okay. The deodorants came to the house. Yes, me too. You got yours. I got them. Kalika picked one up mm-hmm. specifically. And I was like, oh, why are you picking that one up? And she said, because it says it's even underarm tone. Mm-hmm. And she goes like, sometimes when you use the other deodorants, they leave like your underarms untoned or something like that. And she was so excited to have it. She went back and she started using it right there, which made me wonder if she had put deodorant on for the day. <laughs> Maybe she just reapplied. Maybe she, but but like, so that's a, it's a huge deal. And I've been using it too. It's very great. It's good. It smell good. The whole yeah. Thing. No, no, no. It is good. And it's last long. Like mm-hmm. I'm a sweater. Mm-hmm. So I need something strong. Mm. And I need, in addition to, I like that it evens out the underarm. I like the moisture and all of that, but it's the, I need it to last long. And this lasts for, it's a 48 hour sweat and odor protection, which is key. Wow. Uh, get the protection your skin deserves. Tap the banner to learn more or visit SheaMoisture.com. This episode is brought to you by Hyundai. Look at you. You're smart. You're stylish. You've just got it going on. And your ride should be no different. The new 2024 Hyundai Sonata Hybrid is the sedan that meets all your needs. With head-turning details like a sleek front end plus stylish interior and an available 12.3-inch digital instrument cluster and seamless tech integration. Okay, Hyundai. Visit HyundaiUSA.com to learn more about the 2024 Hyundai Sonata Hybrid. Okay, higher learning family, we are getting to the bottom of what's best for animals. And we have someone here who can help us with answers to that question. We have Lauren Howard of the San Diego Zoo. Lauren Howard is the director of veterinary services for the San Diego Zoo Safari Park. What a fantastic situation. Oversees the care of more than 3,000 animal residents of the park. Lauren is also called upon to provide veterinary consult consultation and assistance for animals in natural habitats working to overcome challenges arising as some of these species are threatened with extinction. Houston Zoo, San Diego Zoo, and the San Diego Zoo Safari Park. Lauren, thank you so much for joining us here on Higher Learning. I want to tell you something. I've recently become obsessed with animals. Just recently? (laughs) I've always loved animals, but recently... I've really become obsessed with the plight of animals in our world, in our natural world. Mm-hmm. And there are all these questions that are arising in my head. Like, how do you be an advocate for animals? You know, my relationship with Mountain Lion, my relationship with P22. Uh, talked a lot to Dr. Beth Pratt. And we have a central question here on higher learning, which is what are the what is, should I say, the place of zoos? in conservation, protection, and advocating for animals. We had somebody on the other side here, an activist that is against the concept of a zoo. We have you, Lauren, here, someone who's dedicated their lives to the care of animals, and I would assume the conservation uh, of animals. What role do zoos play in this? Are zoos a good thing or a bad thing? That's a great question um, about the role of zoos today as far as taking care of animals and conservation. And, you know, the role of zoos has changed and evolved over the past several decades. Um, and even in, in my course of the last 20 years that I've been a, a zoo professional. Um, and I, I'm really proud of what zoos are now and what zoos are striving to be and what zoos will be in the future. Um, when they started out, they were just menageries, collections of animals. Um, 
And, and then it was more about figuring out the best way to care for the animals and how, how do you feed this animal versus that animal. Um, and now it's all about um, connecting to our, our wild, our truly wild places, which are fewer and far between every year, unfortunately, and recognizing that the work we do in the walls of you know, our two institutions, the zoo and the park, and at, at zoos across the country and across the world is about um, using our skills and our access and our ability to impact um, to take what we've learned with our animals and our walls and spread it across across the world and share our expertise to ensure that we have um, keeping biodiversity very high as in as many places as we can. Dr. Howard, when I when I listen to you explain it, it all makes perfect sense. You know, I understand why you do what you do. It seems to benefit the animals, but then there's this other side to it. Why is there another side of it when the things that you're doing, and as you explain them, are mm. beneficial to am- animals? Yeah, it's it's a really complex topic, and and it's people take it very personally. You know, when you say you've 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 become obsessed with animals, so many people are, and they take their own experiences, their own experiences with animals they have in their lives, and they apply it pretty broadly. Um, so it's a very personal topic for a lot of people, even people who've never seen an elephant in person feel very strongly about if elephants should be under human yeah. care. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what makes it kind of a sticky, sticky conversation. Um, what we look at is that wild animals are on a continuum. And the one end of the continuum is your dog and flying on your couch right now, <laughs> enjoying peace and quiet while you're at work. And the other end of the continuum is those truly, truly wild spaces where animals do not have borders or fences or do not require human management. Now, even in most of those wild spaces, there's still some degree of human management um, because someone has to keep those spaces protected um, and, you know, do things like make sure domestic animals aren't introducing disease or tourists aren't introducing disease and that kind of thing. Um, So it's really just this giant continuum, like so many things in life. And the question is, where do you fall in the continuum of belief? Um, And we believe strongly that we need to secure all of our wild spaces and the animals and plants that live in them. Um, And we've dedicated our lives, everything in our lives, our professional lives to make that happen and to ensure that all life thrives, whether it's, you know, P22 in the middle of LA, or if it's animals, orangutans trying to get across um, uh, palm oil forests in, in, um, in Asia. So it's, it is a complex question. Um, I think some people really attach their own feelings to animals that they see under human care. And everyone wants to see animals in an area where there are no fences and no borders. Um, but right now there aren't enough safe wild spaces for those animals. So we're going to continue to do everything we can to keep the animals that we do care for safe and healthy and then develop the expertise so we can take that on the road and, and help those animals in other wild animals, other wild places as well. Um, to that point, there are several animals that are under threat of extinction. They, you know, just the... Lauren, let me be real with you. The more I love animals, the less I love people. (laughs) It's just mean. It's mean. I think of P-22 bravely crossing freeways. I think of animals that are trying to live their lives. I look at all this open space out here in Los Angeles. I see a bunch of buildings. And I think, you know, maybe there should be more mountain lion out there doing their thing. So what I'm wondering now is, For someone who wants to be involved, who wants to split the baby here, who it's not about the zoos, it's not about no zoos, it's about the animals themselves. Like, what does a regular, normal person do to ensure that the species that are threatened um, receive the support and help that they need to have numbers where they can thrive again in the wild? Do zoos help threatened species? Zoos definitely help threaten species. Um, There's a lot of ways we contribute. Like I said, um, we develop the expertise. So if there's a medical condition or a challenge in trying to feed a certain animal, we can get that sorted out. So then if we are ready to introduce that species, that's not a limiting factor. 
Um, there's a lot of decisions people can make in their everyday lives just to contribute to a greener, more sustainable planet. And it's all connected, you know, um, reducing, you know, all of your consumption, uh, reducing your carbon footprint, all of that contributes to reducing climate change and climate change is definitely a threat um, to a lot of our wild spaces and our, and our wild species and our biodiversity. Um, so even if you don't have a thousand dollars to donate to a conservation project, the simple acts you make every day and the decisions you make and the decisions you teach your children to make about drinking straws and plastic bottles and all that, that, that helps everything we're trying to do. Now at the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance, we have uh, eight different conservation hubs um, focused in different areas in the world where we have a lot of amazing conservation programs. Everything from relocating animals to community mm -hmm. engagement, um, behavior change, trying to reduce consumption of animal parts. Um, and there's a lot of great information on our website about different ways to help there. At a zoo, can an animal really live the life they were intended to live? That is a really good question. Can an animal really live the life it's intended to live? Um, the way animals live under human care, it does look a little bit different than the way animals live when they're in a truly wild space. Um, it, some, it's kind of like living with your parents, actually, where some things are better and some things are worse, <laughs> you know, because um, there's there's no threat of predators in, in when they're under human care at a zoo or safari park. Um, usually food is pretty consistent, although we do try to offer it in ways that it's not the exact same time and place all the time. Oh, so there's oh. a little bit of change there. You play war games with the animals. <laughs> yes. This is what I like to hear. What do you do? <laughs> I'll do this with Bozeman. Like, what do you, like, what do you do? You, you, like you, you can, you play wily games with the animals. So they have to hunt their food. This is what I'm into, Lauren. Yeah, yeah. Like um, there's uh, they have these what we call stable feeders. So this is taken from, you know, domestic horses that we can use for our elephants. And they're basically um, a timed vending machine for hay. Um, mm. So we can put them in different areas and they go off at completely random times and they're they're not associated with a person. Um, so the elephants um, have to pay attention and notice when something like that happens. We do a lot of scatter feeding for some of our animals and some of our carnivores, we do um, occasional carcass feeding where instead of, you know, a, a, some their typical diet of, of, you know, a healthy balanced meat diet will actually give them a, a part or a whole um, lamb carcass, say, for them to use all those natural behaviors. Um, so there's a lot of different ways we can change things up and keep, keep things interesting. Um, so we are trying to mimic and um, not mimic, but induce or encourage natural behaviors as much as possible. Um, now there, there are some things that, you know, um, we can't mimic in the wild, like in San Diego, the weather is amazing all the time. And actually our rhino team um, had created a year long um, focus on weather change for the rhinos. They called it the big year. And they mimicked the four seasons that those white rhinos would have seen in Africa, including creating like a, a flood and lots of water in the habitat mm. at a certain time of year. And they even um, worked with nutrition to change the kind of food they gave them to mimic like in this time of year, they wouldn't get this very, very um, succulent stuff. They would get drier stuff. Um, so it's, it's, that's one of the things that's so inspiring about working in a place like this is everyone's thinking all the time and using their own skills and their own experiences um, to figure out how to make things better for the animals. Um, and as the veterinary team, you know, we're a part of that, but we're not the only ones. Everyone's doing a great job here. Um, can you tell if the animals are happy? Mm -hmm. <sighs> can you tell if the animals are happy? I look at my dog sometimes and I wonder that too, because she kind of has this doleful look on her face all the time. Um, what we look for is, again, that exhibiting natural behaviors um, and, and happy is a hard word, but um, are they are they living their best life? Are they are they showing those natural behaviors? Things like self-care and grooming. So self-care is, is really important to animals. And it's it's a behavior that you don't always see when an animal is frightened or undernourished or stressed out. Um, so when, when we look at an animal in the habitat we've created for it and it's exhibiting self-care, it's a bird that's preening or it's, it's an animal that's grooming or, or something along those lines. And then we know that all those other boxes are checked because it feels comfortable enough for a, for a tiger to lay down and like 
lick its its you know paws and, and clean itself. Um, mm-hmm. So we do look for those extra behaviors. Um, and also uh, reproduction is a really great way to know if, if animals are healthy and thriving. And that's something we specialize in here at the safari park. Have you guys ever been here to the park? I have not. No. Oh, you got to put it on your list. Donnie, yeah, Donnie, our producer, Donnie has been. He Donnie? was telling me about it. Donnie was saying, Donnie, jump in now. Talk to Lauren. Like, yeah, it, I've never been to the safari park, but I've been to the park uh, itself. And I was talking about how massive it is. I was saying it's like I would compare it to a theme park scale. Like they're in there are basically any animal I could think of. You guys have an exhibit for it. So it was amazing. Donnie's great. Thank you, Donnie. Yeah, yeah. And here <laughs> at the safari park, we have these huge habitats. You could take the entire San Diego San Diego Zoo and put it into one of our habitats here at the safari park. So we have oh, a lot wow. of... Yeah, so we have a lot of herds of antelope and giraffe and rhino all sharing big spaces together, and they they breed really well when we put them in those very naturalistic habitats. So reproductive success is another indication that animals are are feeling pretty good about themselves. I want to piggyback on feelings because when I think of the zoo, and and this is and this is tough, and this is why we wanted to have these conversations because mm-hmm. grew up going to zoos, loved going to the zoo, but you know, as an adult, you start to see things in a different way. And um, as you talked about, as we become obsessed with animals, especially when you have an animal, you start seeing things in a different way. But I can't help but think about the anxiety for the animals, and I wonder if there's a way to measure this when you have kids and people gawking and tapping on the glass and you know like is there a way to to measure that to monitor that um and and do does that make the animals anxious i mean we've seen videos where animals charge at the at um the glass at times and so i'm just curious you know when it comes to that argument of zoos versus no zoos where that lands yeah, animal anxiety and um, feeling safe and not feeling on display like in a fishbowl, um, that's a, a real focus of zoos more these days. You know, in the past, I don't know that zoos have always hit the mark on that. Um, and we were adjusting more to have habitats where there's a space between the animals and the people. And if there is a glass wall, um, there's usually someone standing by or there's, you know, signs and stuff. Please don't tap on the glass. There's there's a few different ways to measure anxiety in animals. Um, there's been a lot of good work looking at um, uh, corticosterone or glucocorticoids. And a lot of times they measure it in fecals. Um, that's sort of a stress hormone. Mm-hmm. Um, it It's. It's not exact. Um, it can change throughout the day, even if you're not stressed based on, you know, diurnal rhythms or whatever. But there's a lot of really good researchers who have been trying to use that. Um, and then we do a lot of uh, what we call ethograms, where we look at the behavior of an animal. And we even have volunteers with charts like every five minutes. What is the animal doing? Because um, we do look for what I'm sure you've seen as stereotypic behaviors like pacing um, back and forth or elephants rocking from one foot to another. Um, some animals um, like giraffes like um, might suck on things a lot if, if they have uh, anxiety or they develop these um, coping mechanisms or habits, um, kind of like chewing on your fingernails. Um, and more and more zoos are rec- recognizing that. Like, for instance, the San Diego Zoo, which has a very large carnivore collection, um, has a, a program they call Replace the Pace. Um, and they're recognizing certain cats that have that anxiety and might pace the same trail in the habitat over and over again. And they're doing a concerted effort, like, why is this animal anxious? What can we do? You know, that's where carcass feeding comes in and other ways to change up the environment. And for us, when animals are sick, um, then there's definitely anxiety for both parties, actually. Mm -hmm. But um, I don't need I don't need drugs most of the time. But um, our animals, um, we especially at the park, we have a lot of antelope like you know um gazelles and all that kind of thing and they're very herd focused animals and when one of them has say an injury or an illness we have to separate them from the herd and and hospitalize them and treat them almost like an intensive care situation and that makes them very nervous because 
in the wild, if you're separate from your herd, you're eaten. Um, So we've come a long way, especially in our practice because of our patients using what we call anxiolytics or basically anti-anxiety drugs. And, you know, you can think about your uh, Prozac and your serotonin reuptake inhibitors and that kind of thing. We have like shorter acting injectables. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That were actually um, used first and figured out in in South Africa with game trans, the endangered game animal translocation. Um, so we've actually figured out, we actually just had a, a springbok in the hospital for a week, which five years ago wouldn't have been possible because they get so anxious when they're separated from their herd. But we were able to manage her with a lot of treatments and a, a lot of medications to get her injury and her illness resolved. And now she's being discharged today. Um, so they're very tricky patients. And um for us, it's not really about what what our limits are because we have an amazing facility and really smart people here, but it's more about the limits of what the animals will let us do for them because sometimes we do have to worry about that anxiety part of things. That was probably a really long answer. I, I enjoyed <laughs> it. Great. This is great. Lauren, I want to introduce you to a concept. And this is my last question. This concept is called AR, Animal Retribution. Hear me out. I just... Just came across this this headline. Ex NFL defensive lineman Derek Wolf's hunts kills massive mountain lion in Colorado. This is a huge, beautiful mountain lion, and he's got his hands around it. So it's time for me to make this guy a celebrity all over everything and make him look like the excuse my language asshole that he is for killing this gigantic, beautiful creature here for no other reason than for sport. This is where animal retribution comes in. I say what we do to Derek Wolf. Since he likes the winter in Colorado. I say we tell him you can come back to society and not be criticized. You got 10 days. We put you in the habitat of mountain lion. You go out there. You survive. Take the gun away, Derek. Let's see how much you got. Let's see. If you can get it done, I think as an animal militant, as I am, what we have to do is allow animals their revenge, Lauren. These animals have to get their lick back. They want it. I've seen this happen before. I've been to the Baton Rouge Zoo and I've seen kids in the Baton Rouge Zoo, which thank God they closed that down because that was a disgrace. I'm from Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I've been to the Baton Rouge Zoo and I've seen kids fucking with the animals. And I've seen the animals on the other side going, just, I just wish just for one time, <laughs> Jurassic Park came to life. I was on the dinosaur side in Jurassic Park, like in every <laughs> single movie. So what do we do to these people, these terrible people that we see slaughtering elephants, that we see kill Cleo the lion, that we see like messing with people? Like, what do we do to them? Like, this is disgusting. This is a disgusting picture that all of my people are sending me now because this guy killed this mountain lion. Like, how do we make this into a societal uh, scarlet letter? Uh, that's a that's a can of worms right there. It's I mean, it's a very good question. And, you know, um, there's there's a lot of folks in this country who hunt legally, um, hunt game animals that are overpopulating and it's an important part of keeping our ecosystem healthy. I get it. Um, I was a deer hunter for years. Yeah. And then, and then like, you don't want them to get lumped in with the trophy hunters who spend hundreds of thousands of dollars to be able to do that trophy hunt in Africa. But it's kind of, it's tricky because a lot of those permits that go to those trophy hunters go to help conservation. Um, you know, so it's, there's always like two sides to every story. I, I couldn't imagine killing a, a, an amazing like predator, like a, a mountain lion, having, having had the opportunity to work with many very close up, um, all of our, you know, top chain predators who are, are not overpopulating. They're not all necessarily endangered, but they all have very important roles in the ecosystem. Um, there's definitely better ways to celebrate them than, than to put their, their heads on the wall. Mm. Mm. Rachel, you got anything else for Lauren? Um, last question. Since we are talking about zoos and people seem to be becoming more and more emotional about them, do you ever think that we will get to a place 
where zoos become extinct? Will we get to a place where zoos become extinct? I, I think that is something as, um, as an industry um, that we've been talking about and also as um, a group of zoo veterinarians. Um, there's, there's about 400 of us in the U.S. that work in zoos all across the country. We're a pretty tight-knit group. And recognizing like what, what does the future hold? And if you look at, I mean, obviously the first thing is um, whales in, under human care. Um, those are no longer being bred under human care. And in another 10 years, when the ones we have die out, they probably won't be visible outside you know, the wild. Um, and, and elephants are one of the next species that people are coming after. And and there have been quite a few zoos who have gotten out of caring for elephants because of the pressure. Um, fortunately, there's other institutions that um, face the pressure, um, add extra resources and make sure that we're caring for elephants the way that we should be like we are here. Um, I would like to think that the only reason zoos would completely become extinct is if they're no longer necessary, which means that we get those wild spaces and those safe habitats back and they can live there. Um, but no matter how many wild spaces there are, we're not all going to be able to visit them. Not everyone has the funds for that. And in that regard, we're always going to need a way to connect everyone in San Diego and LA across the country with our wild animals, because I get to go out sometimes and just watch people here and seeing that connection and that all in wonder with the kids, but not just the kids, it's the adults too, um, it's really special. And, you know, I got into my field by going to a zoo when I was younger and being inspired. Um, so I think the amount of dedication, skills, and passion for caring for animals in zoos, I don't think we'll ever let them go extinct. But I mm. do I do think their role will change in the future. And I'm, I'm, I'm excited to be a part of that conversation. You guys got lions down there? We do. We have a, a couple of, I think, uh, two or three female lions. Yeah. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna train that guy and come throw him in a line and close him. You guys are all gonna be sleeping. <laughs> we, just gonna did, <laughs> we just did a dental on one of the lions, so they're ready to go. Oh, animal retribution! Oh, oh my gosh, don't support it, Doctor. <laughs> animal retribution. This is the sign. We're gonna have shirts made. We're gonna get Joe Exotic and all the rest of these people. Animal <laughs> retribution. That's the sign. Lauren, thank you so much. We are here at at, at Higher Learning. Uh, making sure that we stay connected to our natural world um, and making sure that we keep in mind uh, as human beings, our effect on that natural world and uh, the animal brothers and sisters that we share it with. And so you guys as knowledge, we had Chris Draper on from pause uh, you guys as knowledge uh, from a very, a varying all different angles of, of this discussion has is very valuable to us. And we thank you for taking time out of your day to talk to us. Seriously. Well, I appreciate you caring and wanting to talk about it because that's the only way we're all going to understand each other is to be able to have these conversations. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's Lauren Howard right there. She is the director. <laughs> Don't play with her. Like she, <laughs> she's exactly. She's the director <laughs> of the veterinary of veterinary services for the San Diego zoo safari park. I'm going to come down there. This episode is brought to you by NetSuite by Oracle. As your business grows, you might start seeing some lag. There's too much work for your team, too many different processes, and it takes forever to close the books. If this sounds like you, you should know these three numbers, 37,000, 25, and one. 37,000 is the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. It's a cloud financial system that can help streamline accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25, that's how many years NetSuite has been helping businesses do more with less, and one because your one-of-a-kind business deserves a customized solution for your KPIs. It's like when you come here for this podcast or when you check out your favorite website to gather all the info you need to make better decisions for your fantasy leagues. Well, NetSuite does that for your business and then some. It's one efficient system, one source of truth with everything you need to grow. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash ringer. That is netsuite.com slash ringer. This episode is brought to you by UGG. Y'all know UGG is a brand that athletes wear all the time in the tunnel and on travel days. Well, I bet you think UGG season is only during the colder months of the year. Au contraire, you're wrong. You need to check out the latest spring drop from UGG. They have everything from sandals to clogs. I like the sandals. UGG has you covered for your next spring adventure. Shop the Golden Collection at UGG.com. 
real soon. Thank you for joining us on Higher Learning today. Yeah, come see us anytime. Animal, animal, animal game. Animal, what? animal game. What? That's the Animal Games theme song right there. Donnie, what is happening? Donnie, what's going on? So uh, instead of mailbag, we're going to do Animal Games. We're bringing back the promise. Oh, yes, it is. It is official. We're back. Um, And so to kick off the return of Animal Games, I found out that February is not only Black History Month, it's also Humpback Whale. Awareness month. Oh. oh. So, with that in mind, I got some whale questions for everybody. You Sweet. included, actually. Um. So, oh, no. to determine to determine who's gonna go first, though, uh, I want each of you to give me your best humpback whale impression. Can I hear it again? Shit. Okay. Oh my God. Where Should I go first? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Sound like a cop car. Jesus Christ. Rachel. Hey, by the way, freeze that. Freeze like hey Donnie. Donnie. Wow. Wow. Whoa. Whoa! Come on, man! I'm just, I'm just trying to do it. Donnie, Donnie, I need that still. That's going on. The double two. No, Rachel, stop! Rachel, you can't do it. You can't. Whoa! Rachel's going last. Use that. Use that. Let's hear your whale impression. Okay, Ashley's in last Ashley, place. Ashley's in last. <laughs> Ashley sucks. That was great. I don't know what you guys are talking about. <laughs> All right, yeah, that wasn't that bad. Uh, so I'm gonna say, I'm gonna say, uh, Van first, Ashley second, Rachel third. All right. What? Yeah, I was sorry. clearly distracted. Rachel, you couldn't even get through it without doing full on porn <laughs> on the podcast. So uh, okay, what? Are, so what are we doing? Okay, let's go. Okay, so uh, the first round of questions are going to be true or false. <clears throat> Van, true or false? Humpback whales have the largest teeth of any whale species. False. Correct. False. They have 270 to 400 fringed plates, not teeth, that hang from each side of their jaw because they eat mm. plankton and krill and whatnot. Okay, so that's one, pa- one point for Van. Uh, Ashley, are you ready? Yeah, I'm ready. All right. Second question, true or false? In the wild, humpback whales have a lifespan of 80 to 90 years. Uh, true. Oh, man. Also true. Maybe these questions are too easy. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, that's also true. Uh, Rachel, <clears throat> true or false? Humpback whales have no natural predators. False. Also true. Predators are oh no you, you are also correct it is false their predators are humpbacks their, their predators are killer whales false killer whales and large sharks wait so what did she was she right or wrong i got it right she was right he, the correct answer is it is false they have no natural predator wait wait okay. what am i saying she said she said true you said no, true? i didn't i said no, Wrong. he said they. T- no, he said no. I didn't say true. I said Ra- false. Rachel said, false. said she did. I said I, I swear to God, I said false. You just start paying attention. She said false. What was the false. question? That's true. I said what was that's the question? true. It is false. So that's what's confusing. It was humpback whales have no natural predators, and I said false. You said false. Interesting. I fucked that up. That was on me. Donnie's okay. very we shaky all got today. A point. We all got a point. It's been a minute. It's been a minute since we've done this. Okay. Y'all got one point. Last round is multiple choice. Plain. Let's see if this gets harder. Okay. Then, first one. A group of humpback whales is called A, a troop, B, a herd, C, a pod, or D, a parliament. Run those, run those again. 
A group of humpback whales. No, 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 no. It's B. It's B. It's B. A herd. A herd. False or wrong. <laughs> it's C. It's a parliament. Oh, really? Parliament is like because like a doll is like a doll. It's like you know, it's like dolphins. I should have known that. Odds. Uh, yep. All right. Uh, second question to Ashley. Okay. A newborn humpback whale typically weighs a about two tons. B about 1,500 pounds, C, about one ton, or D, about half a ton? I'm going to go with A. About two tons? Yeah. That's wrong. Wrong, Uh, 4,000 pounds. Uh 4,000 pounds. (laughs) Fucking crazy. I can't believe I missed pod. Captain America says, I I saw a pod of whales in the Hudson. Shit. (laughs) If I get this right, I win. Yes, that is true. Okay, so this is for all the marbles, Rachel. Which of the following senses do humpback whales not have? Oh, damn. Okay. A, taste. B, touch. C, smell. Or D, hearing. What was what were A and B? A is taste. B is touch. I'm going to go with B. Wrong. Uh, wrong. It's A? It's A and it's also C. Damn. You had two options. You could have gotten I, right. I almost said A. Yeah, they can't taste and they can't smell. All right. So first round of Animal Games, we are tied up at one apiece. Cool. Yeah, right. that's great, Donnie. Great work. Donnie's fucking Appreciate amazing. It. Okay, take your thing caps off. We do not stop learning. You guys take it easy. I'm Van Lathan Jr. I'm Rachel and Lindsay. Bye, guys. <laughs> <laughs>